are continuing our study in Hebrews. And if you want to use the book in the pew, the Bible in the pew, it's on page 1007. We'll be reading from Hebrews 11, verses 8 through 12, focusing on Abraham. He certainly couldn't leave out the father of faith, uh, Abraham himself, uh, referred to many times, of course, in the New Testament. Uh, Paul really underscores the faith of Abraham. For instance, in Romans chapter 4, a great chapter to read uh, that is just full uh, of the rich faith that Abraham displayed. And so the writer of Hebrews, the same here. Verse 8, by faith... Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. The kids, before we get going, we've got four really unrelated words, and it's going to be weird that these are the words. However, uh, the word foot is the first one, and then lapel, maybe not something you use ever. That's like in a man's coat or woman's jacket has the little flaps right there, lapel. Then symphony, which an orchestra plays, and finally, a brick wall, closely related, foot, lapel, symphony, and brick wall. You can see the outline uh, in the back of your uh, insert, and I framed the outline not in terms of Abraham himself, but in terms that apply to us. His promise, uh, God enables us to believe his promises one, his promise that one day we will flourish together in his presence. Now, here in verse 8, the verb tense is specific. It's not really Abraham obeyed when he was called. All commentators point to this. But as he was called, as he was being called, or as he heard it, he obeyed and set out. Uh, commentator Cockerell translates, Abraham obeyed as soon as he was called. <laughs> Immediate act of obedience. You might say he obeyed the call while it was still sounding in his ears. And it's remarkable because Abraham didn't have the example of godly people before him, not with his father. He was an idolater. His family didn't worship Yahweh. He was just in, in isolation, you might say, in a vacuum, exercising this kind of immediate faith and obedience. And he didn't know where he was going. 
to a land I will show you, it says in Genesis 12, that it gives this account. He only had this promise. He didn't know where he would go. He had nothing but the promise. And he lived by that word and nothing else. He staked his whole life and his future on that bare word. But for Abraham, apparently, he thought he had everything in that promise. He had a life attachment to the promise maker, you see. So he left his former life behind. And to set out for a place, it says, a place instead of land prepares us for what comes in verse 10, uh, the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Because place usually means home or community or house. And as we find out, Abraham's real inheritance is really not the land. It's this eternal dwelling place. So the writer uses to a place to be defined later, so to speak, right? And the irony is that he's in the land of promise itself, but he's sojourning there, which means it, it was a temporary stay. He's not a citizen, citizen. He's not a landowner. In the land, Abraham is a foreigner. He's an alien in the very land that's promised to him, indicated by the fact that it says they lived in tents. They were nomads, drifters, vagabonds, migrants in the land of promise. No doubt these tents were a stark contrast to how he had been living before in Haran. But as one wrote, he apparently preferred a tent in Canaan to a palace anywhere else. Why? Because a promise. Only promise. And here's the shocking operation of faith in a human heart. In astounding confidence in the goodness of God and in God's faithfulness to his promise, Abraham, sojourning in a land that he did not own and never saw ownership, in the midst of that, he concluded, if God has promised me a possession and this one is not mine, then it must be an everlasting possession. It must be a possession that's surely mine and can never be taken away. And you think, how could you come to that conclusion? He promised a possession, and now I'm looking at this, and it's not, I must have a possession. I'm staggered by that faith. I'm really staggered by it. As Calvin himself wrote, being a sojourner is contrary to the promise, right? It's a stark contrast, contrary to the promise. It's not a fulfillment of the promise, yet he was convinced that in that promise, he already had an unshakable ownership in a future possession. In the face 
of not being an owner of the very land that was his possession. He could have thought, and I would have thought, what an idiot I am. I left everything to come here. God promised me this inheritance, but I have nothing. Stephen underscores this in Acts 7 when he's preaching before the high council of Jews and he's talking about Abraham and he says, God gave him no inheritance in it. He means during his life, he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot length, (laughs) not even a square foot did he have. But as F.F. Bruce wrote, Abraham lived in the good of that promise. And that little phrase has become precious to me this week. And I'm praying that I and all of us will constantly live in the good of his promise, nourished by the goodness of God in his promise. Intents are certainly uh, contrasted with this, uh, what Cochrane calls the unfading durability of this city. Uh, the designer is the one who plans it, and the builder is the one who completes it. So it's, 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 a, it's permanent and superior because from conception to completion, it is the work of God, this city to come. From beginning to end, it is his work, his establishment. He is sovereign. It cannot be changed. It cannot be lost or moved. And notice it says Abraham endured because for he was looking forward. The the verb tense is he was continually looking forward. It was habitual. And it indicates that was his motivation to steady the course because he was looking forward. That's what kept him there, kept him enduring and trusting God. He was moving toward that city. Abraham expected true and perfect happiness from God in a future state. He expected true and permanent happiness from God, whatever his loss was in this world. I love how Calvin puts this in in this section on Hebrews. He writes, faith is founded on his steadfast love, right? we, We trust in his steadfast love. That's why a promise is necessary as evidence of his favor. So his steadfast love comes to us in his promises. They're the evidence of his steadfast love toward us. That's why in 2 Peter, first uh, Peter writes in chapter 1 that we partake of God through his precious and very great promises. It's like his promises are his lapel and that's how you lay hold of him and draw yourself near to him and hold him all your days. Through his promises, that's how you partake of him. And there's no other way to do it except through his promises. 
Peter tells us. That's the way we lay hold of his love that he has for us. And so, brothers and sisters, you have faith. You and I must have faith in the promise maker, even when every promise looks like it's been broken. Outwardly, that's what it looked like to Abraham. There's no land here. I have nothing. I'm a sojourner. He had to, in the end, buy a section of land to bury his wife, Sarah. And certainly, unbelievers would have told him he's a fool. But however things looked on the ground, the promise is never broken. None of his promises are ever broken. And picture for a second... uh, our future inheritance as a final symphony that thrills us and enriches us and transforms us and sustains us and satisfies us forever. That's what's promised. But here, uh, the melodies are fragmented, right? Here, sometimes all we, all we hear is dissonance. Sometimes the music is shattered. Sometimes the music is practically drowned out. But there is full, dramatic, everlasting symphony of God's kindness that is coming to us. Abraham believed in that true and perfect happiness. And that's what we believe as well, no matter the dissonance that we suffer in this world. But we must be careful not to hijack hijack God's promise by demanding immediate fulfillment. And we all cross this at one point or another in our deprivation or we lose to a point we suffer something that we never dreamed we would suffer. That seems to indicate he's turned his back on me. He can't be listening to me. He can't really care about me if he let this happen. But like Abraham, in the very present circumstance of loss and tragedy and disappointments and heartbreak, we're all the more like Abraham to fix our hearts on the final symphony, the final dance, if you were, the forever music of heaven's celebration and freedom and satisfaction, because one day we will flourish forever together in the presence of God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And our hope is sealed in the blood of the Son of God who was punished in our place on the cross in order to bring us everlasting good. It's assured by his resurrection and his ascension to the right hand of God, which we confessed this morning. As Paul says in Colossians 3, we are united to Christ and our life is hidden with him. It's bound up with him at the right hand of God now. 
His presence is the sign of our presence there. His ownership is our ownership through our union with him. And brother and sister, remember, his promise is not a pipsqueak promise that you'll have this or that possession before you die, but you'll have an everlasting possession prepared by God himself that can never be taken away. When he promises, he promises big and he promises forever. And so, like Abraham, we continue in the face of opposing evidence. (laughs) He looked to that city and so must we, no matter how much of this world is taken away, no matter how disenfranchised we seem to be, and you or I may cry out, will he take everything away? Must I lose everything? And one writer says, maybe. And what of it? He has given us everything. And what we have is only a token of that to come. And when he takes anything away, He is pointing to you, pointing you to that which is to come. That's what he did with Abraham. And that's what he will do with you and me. You can count on it. We live by promise. And secondly, and more briefly, that's so you don't get uneasy, you know, with the second point. Urge them along, help them see. His promise that he will overcome all obstacles to accomplish his will in our lives. Then we come to verses uh, 10 and 11. Now, um, 11 and 12, I won't spend much time on it, but I just at least need to mention it because commentators have struggled over this verse 11 because this This phrase, power to conceive, always and everywhere, applies to a man's capacity to conceive, not a woman's, okay? But the text reads Sarah. So, there have been attempts to say, uh, even though Sarah herself was past the age, Abraham received power to conceive, because that's what it seems to be pointing to. Some kind of way to say, well, maybe this is really... Abraham. But I side with those commentators. <clears throat> Philip Edgecombe Hughes is, is one of them uh, who uh, taught at Westminster for some years. That, <clears throat> excuse me, we're barking up the wrong tree to talk about conception, but th- this word conceived is basically made of two words. Uh, there's the word foundation or, and there's the word posterity. So you can find the word foundation in Hebrews 4, 3 and Hebrews 9, 26, where it speaks of the foundation of the world. That word is here, foundation. And then uh, posterity, or we say seed more literally, uh, you can find even in verse 18 of this chapter or earlier in chapter 2, verse 16 and other places. So 
This is Hugh's reading, and I go with this. By faith, Sarah herself received power for the founding of a posterity. And that keeps it in the natural reading that it's Sarah we're talking about here. <clears throat> and it, it makes sense of that phrase that seems to be male-oriented, but it's not. It's simply she has this capacity to found a future posterity. <clears throat> and not only in her case had she been barren her whole life, but now she's even past the time where a normal woman who can bear couldn't anymore. So she's doubly helpless. But it's such a wonderful underscoring of Sarah's place uh, as John Owen himself said, as Abraham is the father of those who believe, Sarah is the mother of those who believe. And in Galatians 4, Paul teaches that we believers are offspring of Sarah. And Peter in chapter 3 indicates that all believing women are the daughters of Sarah. So this is a wonderful place to give. And some have doubted it because, you know, Sarah, if you have read the account, laughed when the angels appeared and were saying she's going to conceive. And she just laughed, you know, almost as to say, that'll never happen, you know. But apparently when the angel then went on to say, no, at this time, I promise you, I will return and you will conceive. And somewhere in there, she believed. She was turned around. And what's interesting in this passage is the last phrase in the Greek is the word without number, okay? Descendants without number. It's kind of ringing in the ears of his hearers. This is God's faithfulness and power that from a situation that was as good as dead, it was gone, it was over, there was nothing that could happen. And in that situation, without number, the descendants. And the rest of the chapter begins to talk about those. And you could trace it through 2,000 years to us and to the whole of believers all over the world without number from two people of whom it was impossible to have a child. And so it's, it's God's word that controls this situation. It's his promise. It's a performative promise. We used that word last week. The promise performs what it promises. And so for us, in closing, we must believe in all the spiritual blessings that are promised to us in Christ Jesus, that are ours in Christ Jesus. We need to count on them, expect them, you may have heard me pray at times, but I'll say to him, Lord, we're counting on you to do this because of your promise. Lord, we expect you to do this because you've promised, because of what Jesus has done for us. I'm trying to encourage myself and all of us 
to expect these things. Even when circumstances say otherwise, when our unity is torn, when there's disagreement and disruption, all the more we count on what he's done for us through the death of his son. We've been brought near by the blood of Christ. He himself is our peace, Paul says in Ephesians 2. And on that basis, we work for peace in our body, however difficult it may seem. We believe in his promise. We believe that he has accomplished this through his death. And so many times we know what the word tells us to do in caring for one another. It tells us that we have to sometimes confront one another, sometimes pursue those who stray, who from all appearances have turned away. We don't know how it will go. We don't know what will happen when we try. We walk into the unknown. But we're told if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Yeah, it's dangerous. It's dangerous to get involved in each other's lives and you don't know how it's going to go. <clears throat> like Abraham didn't know what was going to happen. But he heard the word and he obeyed it. And we obey expecting his mighty salvation work to be fulfilled in our midst and his mighty salvation work to enable us to be light in a dark world. You see, in our personal lives, we will again and again run into the brick walls of our human strength and capacity to change. You know what? The reality is that we are always up against this 10-foot thick brick wall that won't move. But sometimes we see it more often than others. Sometimes we are brought face to face with our weakness and failure. Sometimes it's more obvious. As we struggle to love someone, we struggle to count others as more important than ourselves. We struggle with patience and kindness. We struggle to pray, to worship from the heart, to cherish God's word. We struggle with purity and jealousy and anger. But his promise is sure you are a new creation in Christ Jesus. You are his workmanship created for good things, good deeds, Ephesians 2. He died, Peter says in 1 Peter 2.24, that we would die to sin and live to righteousness. Oh, Lord, bring that about in my heart that's so difficult to be patient. You died to set me free so that I would walk in a new life. Jesus' precious words in John 7, from your innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Brothers and sisters, I challenge you, pray that this week in light of some sin you're struggling with. Pray it and say, Lord, you promise that from my innermost being, new desires would spring forth, a new capacity to think differently, to feel differently, to, to speak differently, to, to live differently from inside out. 
O Lord, therefore give me grace with this thing I'm struggling with. And I encourage you, keep going to the promises and the accomplishments of Christ. They should, you should be flooding the courts of heaven weekly with these promises and this accomplishment of Christ just bar, you know, knocking down the door, so to speak, with the promises that you've made to us. He will overcome all obstacles to accomplish his will in our lives through Christ. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for the precious and great promises, as Peter says, by which we can lay hold of our great God. Enable us, Lord, to be people of promise, people like Abraham who may have nothing else, but we have the promise. And that governs our lives, and that governs our hope, that governs our view of everything that happens to us. We are upheld by the precious promise of God by which he makes known to us his unlimited steadfast love. Oh, bless us, Lord, with that kind of faith for your glory and honor. If you gave it to Abraham in the midst of a pagan family, we are encouraged that you will give it to us who are just as helpless as him. Oh, Lord, glorify your name by giving us that faith. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.